This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is World Changing Ideas, and I'm Amelia Hempel. This season, we're going to be hearing from the dreamers, the experts, and the activists who've all got one important thing in common, a desire to change the world for the better. So if you're on the hunt for some solutions to the world's problems, then you've come to the right place. Okay, let's get into it. For those of you in the US, it's Thanksgiving week. Turkey, ham, stuffing, cranberry sauce, pumpkin pie, all of the delicious treats are taking center stage. But there's no getting away from this growing realization that food has become quite a complicated and controversial topic over the last few years. On one hand, the global population is larger than ever before and people need to eat. We've developed these ingenious systems to produce food and transport it all over the world, so that's a great achievement. On the other hand, industrial meat farming is increasing emissions on a massive scale, while crop farming is decimating the soil and polluting our waterways with synthetic pesticides. Clearly, there are a lot of problems with our current food systems that need solving. And also, I just kind of want to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) So who is coming up with some world-changing ideas in this space? First up, what if we could get rid of the traditional farming model, stop killing animals, but still keep eating meat? It's the idea that you can literally have a steak and then the animal that it's made from is sitting next to you living his best life. It's a bit corny, but I like it. It's like you can have your steak and eat it too. It, it really, that's the idea. That's Dan Lining. He's the co-founder and CTO at Meatable, a Dutch startup that's working on creating cultivated meat. That's lab-grown protein using just some animal cells. Is this magic or maybe frankenfoods? Apparently it's neither. What we do at Meatable is we make 100% real delicious meat, but without slaughtering an animal. And it might seem like a strange premise, but it's actually true. Lining is a scientist with a background in cell biology, and he's been working on this technology for almost a decade. So here's the breakdown. They start off with some cow stem cells. And we feed these cells everything that a normal animal would eat, but only then broken down in its fundamental building blocks. And this could be in sugars, amino acids, salts, everything that a normal animal would require to replicate itself. And then we will create muscle and fat from these cells so that you can eat that without killing the animal ever again. They're calling it a new natural process, which he says could transform food production as we know it while also drastically reducing the strain that cattle farming has on the environment. The production process takes three months from start to finish, versus the three years it takes a cow to mature before it can be slaughtered. I'm not a vegetarian, but I know that the impact that it has on this planet and that we cannot keep growing it like we're doing right now. It's such a great cause to relieve animal suffering, but also uh, make something that people can enjoy eating and, and also reduce climate change. And he's part of the team that made the world's first ever cultivated hamburger back in 2013 in the Netherlands. At the time, it was also billed as the world's most expensive burger of all time. So now the goal with Meatable is to try and commercialize the cellular agriculture technology. I think overall we eat too much meat. Even though meat in a very healthy, balanced diet, it is still the most 
nutrient-dense substance on this planet. But don't eat 120 kilograms per person per year like an average American does. It's too much. He's part of a non-profit called New Harvest, which funds scientific research into creating other animal products too. So it's leather, gelatin, eggs, milk. And in this way, we can basically reduce the amount of resources that it requires to create these products. But there is still public opinion to contend with. While more and more people can get on board with eating less meat, what about eating meat that's being grown in a lab? Is the idea still too new for meat lovers? Every new thing is always met with skepticism and resistance. And that's natural. I remember uh, from history lessons that people thought that the train would make the cows give sour milk or that newspapers would make people asocial because they'd only be reading and, uh, and not converse with each other. And public opinion can change fast, especially when it comes to food and buying trends. Can you imagine 10 years ago that you would go to a, a coffee shop and ask for oat milk? I think that wouldn't be possible, but now you have oat, coconut, what have you. It may seem quite alien now, but the techniques being used to cultivate the lab-grown meat are actually pretty similar to production methods we've already been using for centuries. Making beer is actually cellular agriculture. You're using an organism for beer, this is yeast, and you're feeding it hops and grains to create another product. And this is exactly what we're doing. Instead of only making beer, you can make the other animal products. So instead of using yeast, we use uh, cow cells or pig cells or chicken cells. And from skin cells from uh, cows, we can make leather or we can use yeast to produce milk. So brewing milk in this way. So I think it's more related to that. And even yeast are sometimes grown in a petri dish. This is, this is how yeast is grown. This is normal standard practices. But eventually, if you're doing this on a very large scale, it will look like any other uh, food producing factory. Just because the technology now resides in a lab environment, and you know, cornflakes also did once. Cornflakes was also developed in a lab, but now nobody's seeing cornflakes as, oh yeah, there's lab cornflakes, right? So this is where development happens. And then eventually it matures into a production environment where you can compare it to any other normal food producing entity. All right, so lab-grown meat could one day become the go-to production method. Independent studies suggest that the process would use 45% less energy than global farming and require 99% less land. But there's still the obvious challenge here. Will people be able to tell the difference between lab-grown meat and a regular steak? So if people ask me what it tastes like, it tastes like meat. I can't actually confirm this as fact because meatable products aren't yet available to the market. But here's Lining's take. We are making sausages, like pork sausages will be one of our first products uh, that we are making right now. So it will taste like a pork sausage because it's actually the same stuff that we're making, right? It's actually animal protein. It's actually animal fat. The amazing thing is that it's a mental thing because the tasting itself is is not that special because it is meat. People actually respond to me like, oh yeah, this this tastes like any other product. But that's the amazing thing. Since we didn't have to kill an animal for it, and people say it's the same thing that you get from the animal. And that for me was such a special moment, working so hard to get to this point, and then creating a dinner for somebody and putting it in their mouth and like, oh yeah, this is nothing special. But that's the point, because that's the moment where I believe I can convince most meat eaters to eat this product. If you cannot distinguish between the product that comes from an animal and the product that, well, still comes from the animal, but made in the way that we're doing it, 
then there's no more argument, at least for me, there's very little argument why you would choose a slaughter product over the product that we make, because it will fulfill that need for taste and uh, the sensory experience. Again, that's quite subjective, because if meat didn't taste that special, then why do people pay hundreds of pounds for Wagyu beef steaks? But Lining points out that meatable products will soon be able to build up that luxury taste profile too. And this is really a new idea or new paradigm shift that we're working with, that you can suddenly interact with what's coming to your plate. We can maybe even think about, oh, maybe we want to have higher expression of protein in there or less fat. And so maybe even diversify into a product line that people can choose what type of benefit they want from the product they're eating. Like any other new food product hitting the market, there are still regulatory hurdles to contend with and lots of paperwork. Everyone loves paperwork. So how much will a cultivated piece of meat cost? The first burger was, I think, priced at about 250,000 euros. But this was a proof of concept to show this was actually possible. Whoa, let's hope so. Lining's aiming for the products to be in the same sort of price range as traditional meat. They're starting off with restaurants and then aiming to have their first product in stores by 2025. At least my vision and my my dream for this field is that instead of growing meat in meadows or, or in pastures around cities and then transporting food all over the world to feed like uh, cities like New York or Shanghai or Amsterdam for for all that matters. Uh, we can produce food inside of a city. You'll have a train or maybe even a skyscraper that at the first floor you'll have a supermarket that contains all the products that are being made in the floors above. So in the first floor you'll have cultivated meat section, you'll have a cultivated milk, cultivated eggs, all these things locally produced so that you don't have to transport them. And I think this is really different from what's happening now. All this transportation is just so costly when it comes to the carbon footprint. But then instead of doing that, you can produce it locally, keep it on the shelf longer because it's more fresh. People have thought about this for a very long time, so it really makes sense that this is basically a secondary agricultural revolution. We started from hunter-gatherers to farmers, and now with the understanding that we have of our environment, we can take the next step of taking care of the planet instead of just taking care of feeding people. But big change and big ideas take a bit of integration. Some digesting, maybe. Herzlich willkommen im Intercity der Deutschen Bahn nach... Okay, let's pop over to Germany now, the land of Bratwurst and traditional Frankfurter. Germany leads the European market in the production and export of pork and takes second place for beef. But interestingly, its home population seems to be losing the taste for it, with sales of plant-based foods nearly doubling in the last few years. Lunchtime in Berlin. Many restaurant menus now feature not only vegetarian dishes, but also vegan meals. This restaurant is one of the finest in Hamburg. Now it's begun offering vegan cuisine. Vegan barbecue is the name of Nicole Just's cooking course. The Berlin resident shows her pupils how to make dips, salads and sausages that are free of animal products. Our producer Avery Miles has been in Germany doing some on-the-ground market research. Hi, Avery. Hi, Amelia. So this wasn't your first trip to Germany, was it? No, but it has been a while. And I saw a tremendous shift when I was there. So originally, I went nearly 20 years ago when I was a foreign exchange student. And I lived with a host family. um, And as a lifelong vegetarian, you know, that was very new for them. And it was something to adjust to. 
and you didn't see that many veggie offerings. It was a very sparse <laughs> selection, but nowadays it seems like it's everywhere you go. What kind of things did you notice that had changed? Well, for one thing, uh, there were a lot more signs that just kind of say, hey, here's a veggie option, and, you know, are you interested in going veggie? But then also, one night I was out grocery shopping with my host parents, and while we were there, we took a walk down the veggie aisle, which never existed before. It was a section, or like a row, if that. Okay, everything in Globus. And so down this aisle, we took a look at some of the vegan and vegetarian products on sale, and we looked through the ingredients on some of them. Look here, vegan minced meat, ew. No idea what's inside. We'll have to look what it says. Wasser, soja, proteinkonzentrat, kokosöl, rapsöl. Water, soy, protein concentration, coconut oil, rapeseed oil, and then it gets started. Packaging stuff, flavors, food coloring, radish, beets, peppers, carrots. All that together, it's 78% water and oil. That's just great. And look, it costs 4.29 euros. That's crazy. It's crazy. Look here. How long is it good for? Yeah. That stays good for half a year. I don't think that's normal. So the water is always the first um, ingredient. So, needless to say, my host mom was not into the idea of paying over four euros for something that is essentially half water. Especially when compared to the pork sausages, for example, that are made of 85% actual pig meat. And then I showed her a vegan roast Bratwurst, which is uh, typically a pork sausage with spices. And she said if she were vegan, she wouldn't eat any roast Bratwurst. So I asked her, what would you eat? Yeah. What would you eat? I don't know. None of this stuff. Sorry. Okay, fair enough. There is a strong case to be made that a lot of the vegan products out there rely heavily on soy protein, which isn't great for the environment and can be full of salt, bulking agents, and other slightly strange ingredients. So she wasn't into the idea of veggie sausages or fake beef, but what about a vegan egg? There's a new vegan product on the scene, and it's being developed by a company called Negsd that's based in Berlin. So I made a trip to visit the headquarters, and I got a little taste test while I was there. Let's go upstairs so you can really taste it. Yeah. Yay! I met with the co-founders Veronica Garcia and Patrick Doifel, and they gave me a tour of their lab before I tried out the vegan egg. Okay, now we're going down into the kitchen. The whole idea behind a vegan egg, as Garcia explains it, was to offer a simple but nutritionally dense vegan alternative for something as ubiquitous as the egg. 
So myself, I'm vegetarian. I'm also a lot into the nutrition and fitness, and I really wanted to create something that I will personally eat. She said she prefers eating vegan meals, and part of what inspired her to create a vegan egg was that, one, she loves eggs. Two, she wanted to create something that would provide an easy transition for people who want to follow a plant-based diet. Because finding vegan recipes with all the right proteins in it can be a lot of work. So a vegan egg could just tick off a lot of those boxes. The idea was to create like an egg white and egg yolk. Definitely we can use it for scrambled eggs, like the just egg, or we can use it for the fried egg. And this is something that I think a lot of people still like to have a really nice fried egg with a runny yolk or so on. But uh, you could also use it for baking. I think our, our, our product has a really neutral taste. When she started researching all of this in 2019, there weren't a lot of alternatives in Europe, just a few powders, which can be somewhat complicated when you need to know just how much water to mix into it. So Garcia wanted to develop something that could straight up pass for a chicken egg. And for a lot of people, that means it has to pass the fry test. So it was um, a real challenge. We wanted to make it as transparent as possible that it turns to white and then also that um, when you cook it, it gets hard, but when it cools down, it stays hard. And I think this was really complicated because it was to find uh, the right um, ingredient to make, to make this. It was not possible that we had to find two ingredients that made like uh, the right interactions. There's nothing too strange about the appearance. They're going for realism here. There's a shell you need to crack open, and inside there's a white goo and a yellow-orange blob that could be a yolk. But looks can be deceiving. The next egg is actually made out of broad beans, which are large, flat, edible green beans. They're also known as fava beans. Garcia also added peas, sweet potatoes, and vegetable oil into the mix. And then the shell is made from a fermented polymer mixed with some calcium. It looks like a typical plastic egg you might find on Easter, but you can toss it into your compost and it will biodegrade. But also in terms of cooking time, it's the same or very similar to your, your fried chicken egg. Okay. And it just makes it easier. So people, uh... It fried pretty nicely. You could see the edges starting to brown. When Garcia tapped the yolk in the middle, it didn't ooze like a chicken yolk, but instead it kind of got mushy. I prefer my eggs over hard, which is more of a solid yolk center. But for those who like it runnier, this would be a bit of an adjustment. It will leave it a little bit longer than it gets uh, also crispy down, yeah. so it can get, yeah. it can start tasting that one. Let me, So you could taste it without the, the salt, because we don't have right now any type of flavoring or so on. So usually we always top it with some kalinamak. What is that? Uh, so this one you need to try it maybe by itself. Okay. <laughs> she suggested I sprinkle some of this kalinamak on top of the eggs to help boost the flavor. Kalinamak is a black salt that tastes very sulfurous. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I feel like I went down a volcano. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like when you go to a what I tried was the unflavored version, but Doifel explained that once it goes to market, it will be flavored, at least the version for regular consumers. They'll also make one for chefs who like to, you know, play around with flavoring. So you can taste it without it, or we can put some 
in it. I'll definitely taste it without it yeah. first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. should I use this? Okay. All right. Here we go. Oh, that's cool tasting. The crispy part. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't expect that. Hmm. Well, I definitely don't feel like I'm eating peas mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or sweet potatoes. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't sure what to expect when I tasted it, but it had a grainy sort of feel to it, kind of earthy. I was most wowed by the crispy part. So when the product is scrambled, it has a darker mustardy color to it. And Garcia said it takes longer to make scrambled next so that the ingredients can grab hold of the water. Oh, you can see a little bit of browning there. Yeah, too. also. Mm, yeah. So right now it's a little bit softer mm -hmm. than normal, I would say. But so again, if we leave it a little bit longer, then it creates this uh, browning mm -hmm. around it. Then it gets also really more crispy with more texture. Yeah, it kind of solidifies. Mm -hmm. a bit more. So maybe it doesn't exactly imitate a chicken egg. Goal number one is not to imitate the chicken egg one to one, but goal number one is to have something that tastes good is healthy and better for the environment than a chicken egg. But okay, the question still remains. Why do we really need a vegan egg? Of course, that would be great uh, if people would eat plants. Um, but we see uh, that consumers are hesitant to shift behavior from zero to one. So we want to make it easier for consumers, for people around the world to switch from an animal-based diet to a plant-based diet. So is it just about ease of transition? Or are there other more important factors at play when it comes to Germany's move away from meat? The numbers are definitely creeping up. According to one poll, the number of vegans in Germany doubled from 2016 to 2020, hitting 2.6 million people, which is over 3% of the population. That's definitely not the case for my host family, though. When I sat down with them after my visit to the next kitchen, I got their take on what a vegan egg means to them. So what thank you, also what means you? Can we then überhaupt nicht drunter vorstellen, was das sein soll und was es da gibt? Nur natürliches Ei. First, Oma, which means grandma. Oma was not sure what a vegan egg was. She couldn't imagine what that's supposed to be. And then my host aunt Anka was like. There's only natural eggs, and they come from ducks, chickens, or ostriches. So this is what I'll say. A chicken is a chicken. And if so, then how does that chicken taste get inside this vegan egg? I'd rather eat natural things, and I want to know where it comes from. My host dad made the argument. If it's a situation where I definitely want to live a vegan lifestyle, why do I need a vegan egg? Fair point. I asked all of them if they would ever want to try the vegan egg. Which got mixed reviews. Oma was definitely not into it, 
But Anka and my host mom, Marina, said, you know, you can try it once at least. And they have done so in the past. They've given some vegan products uh, a sample taste. But when it comes down to it, you know, the better question to ask is... And then you have to think it over. Is it necessary to eat meat every day? This is my host, Uncle Bodo. I could happily eat something vegetarian like an egg or something vegan like vegetable soup. Maybe you could eat meat once or twice in the week, but not every day. Back during the war, my host mom said there was nothing to eat, and then after the war, there was only very little. So the most meat you ever had was once a week, and each person only got one piece. Ultimately, it was a luxury product, like Bodo explained, which is now very different with mass-produced livestock agriculture. Then they started talking about how agriculture has been outsourced in Germany, and my host sister Steffi pointed out that you can get seasonal fruits that are native to Germany, like apples and pears, instead of raspberries and strawberries in winter. You know, which don't taste good anyway. Ultimately, the conclusion at the table was vegan eggs are unnecessary, and instead they'd like to see a reduction in mass animal production, along with a return to eating items that are available seasonally. All right, back to you, Amelia. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Great. Thanks, Avery. Okay, so we've looked at meat, eggs. What about dairy? Another big offender when it comes to the climate. So is there a way that we can cut the methane emissions, sort out the animal welfare problems, and still have the joy of ice cream and frothy lattes? It's a really difficult thing to do to give up all animal products because not only are they in some of our favorite foods, but they're uh, darn near ubiquitous. Ryan Pandia is the co-founder and CEO of Perfect Day, a U.S.-based company founded in California that produces a cow-free ice cream called Brave Robot. But Pandia's not stopping at the frozen foods aisle. He's got his eye on the entire dairy industry. Anyone who's, who's tried to avoid dairy can tell you, it's not only the milk and cheese and yogurt and ice cream. Every aisle of the grocery store has the chance of finding a dairy product. So with his background in chemical and biological engineering, Pandir and his co-founder decided to figure out a way to create something that could not only replace dairy, but that would help construct the very building blocks for it in the first place. They wanted something that had the same taste and the same texture. But how do you create an animal product without the animal? Well, as we learn with Meatable, it starts with basic cell structures. In this case, that comes down to the milk protein. It's the protein found in milk that really gives it not only its spectacular nutrition, but its ability, its versatility, ability to, to turn into all the things that milk can turn into. And how do they do that? Basically, by using large quantities of microbes like yeast to create a protein brewery. 
it's a fermentation tank of the sort that you might see making beer or wine. Since about the 80s, the food industry has used fermentation tanks much, much larger than you'd see in a, a beer or wine facility to produce things that you and I might find boring, like enzymes, like vitamins, amino acids, flavors and fragrances. It really is kind of that simple. It's a tank that you feed sugar to little organisms and they convert it into protein. It's kind of like you feed grass to a cow and they turn it into milk. Precision fermentation is going to be a huge deal in the future of the food industry. It's already used on a large scale to produce things like insulin or vitamin pills and even bee-free honey. So instead of a farm full of cows grazing, the food production of the future could just look like a giant tank where you add ingredients to the mix in order to generate a fermentation process. This isn't going to cut out the cows completely, though. Pandia says he thinks it's more about making cows a premium option for the market. He compared it to, like, how transportation has changed over time. No one's going from New York to Boston on a horse anymore, or not that I know of. Like, you can still ride horses, but it's become a very, very premium side of the market. And people are going out of their way, often paying a premium, and I think having a lot more respect for the people and animals that are involved than would be the case if it were the commoditized default way that people get around. And no one alive remembers, but this was the case, you know, a century and a half ago, where people were complaining about the pollution from literally dying animals on the side of the street. Wow, that's quite visceral. But I get the point. Times are changing. People want a, a delicious food product. They want nutrition. They don't necessarily need that to have come from an animal. And so I think we're doing a disservice to the people and animals that are involved right now. And what does Pandia say to the skeptics? Because there are plenty of people out there who think that this is maybe just more meddling and manipulation of our food. And it could end up producing weird synthetic ingredients like trans fats. This is different because now we're harnessing biology, not chemical engineering, to create the same kinds of foods that we have consumed for 10,000 years, identical to what our bodies are familiar with, extremely pure, just made in a different way. So all the benefits. But can consumers actually taste the difference? Pandia and his co-founder put the Brave Robot ice cream brand to the test. So I think it was the summer of 2019, we did an ice cream truck in LA and we were, we were giving out, I think, 10,000 samples of ice cream to people walking by on like Venice Beach and stuff in downtown LA. And people would walk by and we're like, hey, do you want a sample of ice cream? It's lactose-free, vegan, cholesterol-free, uh, but so good you'd never know, right? And you know, the weirdest thing is people didn't really get what was the big deal about it because they're like, cool, thanks for the free ice cream and they're on with their lives, right? I think if it had tasted or, or felt or like melted differently or anything, there would be more of a conversation to have. And people would be like, what is it you just gave me? Do I like it or not? Do I want it or not? But instead they're like, thanks for the ice cream. I don't know why you're giving it out for free, but like, good luck with your business model, but thanks for the ice cream. That was the vision. And, and I'm happy to say that that's what happened is it, we were able to give people something that that was so unremarkable in its identical experience to the animal product. We got to try out some of the ice cream at our New York office. And if you want to know what it tastes like, you're going to have to go and watch everyone trying it out on our Fast Company TikTok. But what about the actual business model here? I mean, could anyone just go out and start making this if you know a bit about fermentation and brewing? Pandia says he doesn't feel threatened. In fact, he welcomes competitors into the space, but he does warn that it's a challenging one. I think the reality is that while it's easy to make a cell produce a protein, it's hard to do it economically. It's hard to do it in a way that um, you can be sure is going to be consistent 
every single time you run a batch, that's going to be something you can put your stamp of approval on in front of a regulator and know that it's going to be you know safe and clean and everything. You know, th- this is the difference between tinkering or, or a, a hobbyist kind of thing versus turning something into a, a real commercial enterprise that the likes of uh, the Nestle's of the world can really rely on. It takes quite a lot of energy to maintain the controlled environment that you need for fermentation as well. But the process does stack up pretty well compared to the dairy industry. According to the latest research, generating all of our dairy products using fermentation would cut the industry's net greenhouse gas emissions by 90%. That's huge, as well as saving on all the water use too. And how's the scaling going? Well, Perfect Day is ramping up production on two new plants as we speak. So watch this space. Okay, will bioengineered food and cellular agriculture be a world-changing idea? Right now, these are pretty small companies with big ideas. But the power of yeast and fermentation techniques certainly could be a game-changer when it comes to scaling up this kind of production. Investors are also pretty intrigued by the new developments in this space. In total, Perfect Day has raised almost $712 million, Meetable close to $173 million, and Next over $5 million after a round of seed funding this past September. Just a perfect day. While doing his research, Pandia came across a study that showed cows produce more milk when listening to the song Perfect Day by Lou Reed, which is what inspired them to then change the company's name. Amazing where a bit of experimental thinking can take you. Oh, it's such a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. Okay, so before we go, we wanted to let you know that next Wednesday, we're going to be switching things up a little bit and hearing from our colleagues over at the New Way We Work podcast. Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis covers the changing landscape of our work lives. Next week, Kate is going to be addressing two burning issues that affect our work lives. We've got the lingering pandemic and a looming recession. So how can we take the long view of our careers when planning for the future feels so uncertain? Tune in to hear Kate discuss this with Dory Clark. She's been named the number one communications coach and one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world. She teaches at Duke and Columbia Business Schools, and she's also the author of several books, including The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Okay, that's it for our show today. I'm Amelia Hempel. We want to hear about the world-changing ideas going on where you are. Please leave us comments, reviews, and all of the stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts too. And we'll see you next Wednesday. Our show is produced by Avery Miles, mixing and sound design by Nicholas Torres, Joshua Christensen is our supervising producer, editorial oversight from deputy editor Kate Davis, and senior VP of entertainment Scott Mebus. Oh, it's such a perfect day.